Are you, are you familiar with the story of the 300 Spartans? You ever see one of those movies or, or read anything about them? This, it was clear back 480 years B.C. Um, there were approximately 300 Spartan and other, some other Greeks too, hoplite warriors who made their stand against the Persians under the command of the king, Xerxes, the Persian king. And uh, these Greeks were vastly outnumbered. So Xerxes sent a courier to, uh, to see the, the Spartan king, Leonidas. And this courier asked Leonidas to lay down his arms. He asked Leonidas to command his men, lay down your arms. And famously, Leonidas wrote a message back to Xerxes, two words, Malone Labe, which in Greek translates to come take them. So this courier tried to uh, convince Leonidas of the foolishness of standing against this massively outnumbered, uh, this massively outnumbering Persian army. The courier told Leonidas, when our archers let loose, there's so many archers, when they fire their arrows, the flight of their arrows block out the sun. To which Leonidas, Leonidas responded, so much the better, we'll get the fight in the shade. Now that is awesome, right? That's what we want from our heroes. We want just courage in the face of very long odds. We want larger-than-life figures. Brash strength. Well, this morning, we are going to start a new book of the Bible or studying a new study through it, a very old book of the Bible. First and second Samuel is where we're going. Uh, originally, that was all one book. And where we pick up in the story of God's redemptive plans, um, Israel needs a hero. Just to give you a visual of where we're at in, in, in the history just of Israel, um, of course, creation would be back here, and Israel has been in, had been in uh, bondage and slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God rescued them through Moses, through the Exodus. It took them 40 years or so, but they finally made it into the land God had promised to it, to Israel, the promised land. After 40 years wandering in the desert. They entered the promised land, Israel did, under the leadership of a man named Joshua. But then when Joshua died, Israel didn't have a national leader for about 400 years. I noticed just when I was going through this this morning, if you can see the dates, there's a typo of the dates on that. I stole this timeline from someone else. I didn't steal a very good one. But this is called the period of the judges. It lasted about 400 years. And it was a time where Israel didn't have a national leader. A judge in ancient Israel wasn't just someone who heard court cases. It was a local um, 
civil and military and judicial leader. And there were judges in, in lots of different communities and regions around Israel. So where we pick up today is in the, the time of the judges, toward the end of the time of the judges. One of the heroes of this book, uh, he'll be born in today's passage. His name gives his name to this book. Samuel really was the last judge of Israel. That's where we are, and here's why Israel needs a hero at this particular time. The time of the judges is a time of cyclical decline throughout Israel. This is the, the cycle that repeated itself throughout that 400 years. Israel uh, and its various tribes and areas and neighborhoods they would serve the Lord, worship the Lord. Life would be pretty good for a while. Israel would sort of fall off the wagon, so to speak, into sin and idolatry. and They'd worship other gods. Um, and then God would allow a neighboring people group to like bite off a chunk of Israel, invade, take over. And we say that Israel would be enslaved, though it's not really what we think of. We would probably say they would just be exploited terribly for a period of time. And so then Israel would cry out to the Lord, please help us. God would raise up a judge, one of those leaders in that area. And, and that uh, man, or in one case, woman, um, would organize the fight to deliver that part of Israel, that region, from those invaders. And they would go back to serving the Lord until the next time they fell off the wagon. And it didn't just circle like this. It just got worse and worse and worse. The highs were never as high. The lows were always lower. And on the right side of the screen there, that's, that's the last verse in the book of Judges. And this, this was the state of Israel. In those days, those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. And the nation's just kind of a wreck. So Israel needs a hero. And God is ready to raise one up where we pick up today. But God very often finds His heroes in unlikely places. This is a little bit of a longer passage, and since we're going to take it more or less chronological, we're going to read just the first half Talk about it for a minute, then we'll read the second half. I'd love for you to have a Bible open to the book of 1 Samuel. If you want to reach under a chair uh, in front of you and grab a Bible, you can turn that to page 282. And that's where you'll find the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. And here we go. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, or Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, Elkanah, would go up 
from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there at Shiloh. Verse 4. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons, to all her daughters. But to Hannah, Elkanah would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah in a special way. But the Lord had closed her womb. And as a rival, Peninnah, however, would provoke Hannah bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. This happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, uh, Panina, would provoke Hannah, so Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And we'll stop right there. That's, the, that's how this book, 1 Samuel, begins. The first person we meet in the book of 1 Samuel is a guy by the name of Elkanah. He, here's what we know about this guy. Uh, we don't know specifically where this town was. It's just lost to history, but it's in Ephraim. Um, he's in, from the hill country, which just means he's from the sticks. Dude is from the country. So we can, we can appreciate this guy. He's fairly well off. He knows his lineage. He's from a good Israelite family. So he's, we don't know how wealthy he is, but he's certainly not poor. And we also know that he has two wives. And we better just stop and deal with this right now, lest we have some unanswered questions bouncing around in our heads the rest of our time. Polygamy, which is just the name given to being married to more than one person at the same time, Polygamy is relatively common in the Old Testament amongst God's people. And we can't find, because there's not one, a verse in the Old Testament where God says, thou shalt not marry more than one person at the same time. He never strictly uh, prohibits it. That does not mean, though, that God endorses polygamy or is okay with polygamy, even in the Old Testament. Now, it's easy in the New Testament because Jesus makes it very clear that's not what God wants. Jesus points back to the beginning and says, here's the ideal. God builds civilization on marriages between one man and one woman that are, that are permanent. That's the ideal. But even without the New Testament, um, every time we read a story, and today will be no exception, every time we read a story of a polygamist family in the Old Testament, that family is always filled with, because of the polygamy, pain and heartache. It's a wreck. It's a nightmare. Every time. So, if you can... If no one can read these stories and come away with the idea that I think God is showing us like the map of the best way to do things. If you can read one of these stories and come away with that idea, you don't know how to read a story. You just don't. Because it's a mess every time. 
But it happened. And it happened here. We're not told this, but here's my best guess at why this man married two women. He was carrying on a very old and a very bad family tradition. Certainly his first wife was named Hannah. And over I don't know how many years of marriage, Elkanah learned and Hannah learned that they couldn't have children. So it's an old family tradition to try to scheme your way into having kids by the man taking another woman uh, to have children by her. That's undoubtedly what happened here. That's the way this went down. It's not good, but it is what it is. One great thing about the Bible, the Bible does not sugarcoat its characters and and even its heroes. Where they're a wreck, we learn um, about the mess they make make of things. The Bible is very honest about its people. So that's Elkanah. And from the first eight verses that we read, besides learning some characters, here's one thing we definitely learn from following this family. That is, even religiously devout families can have some really serious problems. Now, you might be surprised to hear me call a polygamous family devout. But I didn't say they were perfect. I said they were devout. And they are. Several times in the first two chapters, we read over and over again that year after year, they went where they were supposed to go to do what they were supposed to do religiously. Like in our uh, way of saying things, we would say, here's a family that every time the doors of the church were open, they were there. They always they were religiously devout, but that doesn't stop them from being a, a, a kind of a mess because they were. Now, one thing the author of this book doesn't tell us, and we don't know who the author of Samuel was, by the way, but he doesn't explain what is adequate for us to understand all of this, what we would call the church experience, because he didn't have to. This was written to ancient Israelites who knew what happened when one went to the tabernacle. So I want to tell you, because we have to know this to, to really get the most out of this passage. Here's what was going on here on these trips to Shiloh and why they were going to Shiloh. God prescribed in the law. So if we went back to uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and read through the law, we would find that God demanded, prescribed, that devout, that faithful Israelite families had to go to the tabernacle uh, year after year, three times a year actually, to offer sacrifices and offerings. And since the days of Joshua, the tabernacle, the tabernacle was just like a temple that was able to be moved. The tabernacle was parked at Shiloh, and that's where it was since the days of Joshua. So that's, the reason they were going to Shiloh is because that's where the tabernacle was. And here's the way this would work. A family would make that trip, and they would bring some animals and some other stuff to be sacrifices and offerings to God. The first thing they would offer would be a young bull as a sin offering. And here's what that meant. In this case, Elkanah, he would come and he would take that young bull, he would bring it to the priests at the tabernacle, he would place his hand on the head of that young bull, 
he would confess his sins and the sins of his family onto that bull. And then the priests would, would kill that bull and put it on what looked like a giant barbecue. It was expanded metal over a fire. It's like a grill. And that animal would be, it would be, it's called a whole burnt offering, which just means they'd burn the whole thing up. That's a sin offering. And the reason that was prescribed, that was to teach Israel that if you are going to be okay before a holy God, what do you do with your sin? Something has to die because of your sin. Either you or God's substitute. And under this system, an animal was used to teach. Sin costs death, but God will graciously allow a substitute to die in your place. But the sacrifices aren't done. Once the sin offering is done, the family could offer another offering. It's usually called a peace offering or a fellowship offering. And what that was, now that our sin is taken care of, we could offer another animal that the priests would kill, but this one was a meal, right? And uh, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. The priests got some meat. The family got the rest of the meat, and they got to cook it and eat it there nearby God's tabernacle. And here's what's being pictured there. Now that our sin has been taken care of through the substitutionary atonement of the sin offering, now we have peace with God. We have fellowship with God. That's why they're called a peace offering or a fellowship offering. And when we sit down and eat that meal, we're eating a meal together with God. The priests are eating God's part. We are eating our part, but we're sharing this meal. It's like sitting down to a meal with God, which is only possible because our sin has been taken care of through the substitute. All of that was to point mankind toward the person of Jesus Christ. The reason we have a cross at the front of our church is because someone had to die for our sin. And honestly, bulls and goats were not effective to take away people's sins. A, a man had to die for the sin of mankind, but a perfect man, because he couldn't die, otherwise he would have had to die for his own sin. So Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And when he went to the cross, he was becoming, as his cousin John the Baptist called him, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He was becoming the sacrifice, like the whole burnt offering that we confess our sins upon. He dies in our place because of our sin and instead of us. And once we trust in Christ in that way, guess what we then have? Peace with God. Fellowship with God. So that's what their religious experience was about. That's why this family would go to Shiloh every time they were expected to go. In those days, eating meat was a real treat. For some of us, it's a treat all the time. But in those days, it was very rare that you got to eat meat. People didn't have deep freezes, right? Uh, so 
It was a treat to eat meat. So Elkanah, our guy Elkanah here, he loved his first wife, Hannah. Even though she was not able to bear children. We'll talk next week about why that was such a huge deal in that culture. And I know a lot of you know the pain of having fertility issues. And Hannah felt that also. And Elkanah, he wanted to demonstrate to his, to his first love, Hannah, that he still loved her. So after what I just described, we've done the sin offering, we have the fellowship offering, we've cooked it, we're ready to have this celebration. Elkanah would divide up the meat in equal portions among everybody at their meal. And then very publicly, he would give twice as much meat to Hannah as everyone else got. Because that was a way for him to demonstrate, I, out of all these people, I, I love you best. Even though it doesn't matter to me that you haven't been able to, to have children. So that's what that double portion thing is about. Now, don't miss this. This is very important from this passage. Answer this question. Why was Hannah unable to have children just from what we've read in this passage? God kept her from being able to have children. It's such an important point that our author tells us twice in two verses. He tells us in five, the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her to irritate her bitterly. Why? Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, if you have experienced the pain of infertility, that's probably a tough verse to swallow. But there it is. Why would a good God give a woman, not just allow that kind of pain, but cause this woman that kind of I want you to hang on to that question. Because we're going to come back to it at the end. So here's Hannah who has the pain of infertility, which many of you know, and, and in that she wasn't doing her part for her nation. It was, it was an even more probably for her, though it's bad enough as it is. But that pain was not the only pain Hannah had to deal with. Because her husband decided he needed to marry another woman to have children with. Her name was Panina. And, and Panina was really awful to Hannah, it seems. Every time, three times a year, year after year, every time they went to Shiloh, here would come the tormenting of Panina against Hannah. Why do you think Panina was so mean to Hannah? Why do you suppose? Panina was just as jealous of Hannah as Hannah was jealous 
of Penina because Penina had to know. She she did know that she did not have her husband's heart. I'm just the baby machine. He really loves her. And she had to know year after year, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go down to the tabernacle. We're going to sit down for that meal. And Elkanah is going to make a big deal out of giving the extra special portion to the woman she really loves, which he thinks is a signal to everyone of how much he loves her, but it's really a signal of how much he doesn't love me. And that made her feel inferior to Hannah. So she tries to take the one way she feels superior over Hannah and grind Hannah's face. And the fact that I have children and you don't. You might have Elkanah, but you don't have kids. I don't know how this went down. I imagine it being passive-aggressive on the way. In my mind's eye, I see Panina trying to take care of all of her kids. And little Elkanah Jr., stop picking on your sister. And you two, stop doing that and get back over here. And don't make me pull this donkey over. And or however that went down. In my mind's eye, I see her looking at Hannah and saying, oh, it's just so hard to keep track of all these kids. <gasps> Not that you would know or understand. And as we got closer and closer to the time that Panina knew the special double portion of meat was going to be given to her rival, I imagine it getting more and more aggressive. Why do you continue to come, Hannah, to worship a God who won't allow you the joy of motherhood? Elkanah might love you, Hannah. But God apparently doesn't. And Hannah would get so upset and so depressed that she wouldn't even be able to eat the special gift her husband gave her. And Elkanah is thinking, I've given everybody everything I can. And he tries to comfort Hannah by asking this, uh, this question right here. Why are you so sad? What's the matter? I gave you more meat than everybody else got. Am I not better to you than ten sons? At that point, ladies, what's the answer to that question? Not exactly a storybook fairy tale family, are they? They're a mess. They are jacked up. But listen, when God's ready to start going to work to change the nation of Israel, this is the family He picks to work through. This family. God has long been in the business of working through messed up people from jacked up families filled with hurt and pain and damage. And He has not stopped yet.
Let's read the second half of our story this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 9 and read through verse 20. Then Hannah rose, or she stood up after the meal in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Hannah made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but you will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never touch his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart Only her lips were moving. Her voice was not heard. Eli Eli thought she was drunk. Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the booze. Verse 15. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, it's not like that. I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and the provocation of my heart. Verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you your petition, whatever it is you've asked from him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman, Hannah, went away and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Okay. So year after year, this this broken, uh, pain-filled, super-damaged family went to the tabernacle. They're supposed to be going there to have a meal with God, to get their sin taken care of and have a meal with God. But that's never what this trip was about. It was just pain ping pong, right? They would get going. One of the the gals would start feeling pain. And in her pain, she would serve some pain over to her rival who would get hurt and, and hit some pain back in her court who would then hit it back to the other one. And poor Elkina, poor Elkina, thinks he's just stuck in the middle and he doesn't realize he's actually the cause of a bunch of it. And they're supposed to be relishing and celebrating the fact that their sin is taken care of and they have peace with God, but that's never what they're doing. It hurts. And at some point on one trip, something snaps inside of Hannah and she stands up from the meal and goes back toward the tabernacle. Now, because they are, they are eating and drinking, that lets us know their time at the tabernacle is supposed to be done. They've done the sacrifices. They're at the celebration meal phase. And so, but she gets up and she goes back toward the tabernacle and she absolutely falls apart. It would be hard for me to overstate the emotional breakdown that the Hebrew describes. It's it's like it says that even her weeping was weeping. 
Even her tears were crying. She is sobbing. She can't talk out loud. But she's praying through her sobs. And through her sobs, she does at some point, after she has poured her heart out to the Lord, makes this vow. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will look on compassion, compassion, look with compassion on the suffering of your servant, remembering me and not forgetting your servant, and give a son to your servant, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. What's this mean? First, Hannah calls God the Lord of hosts. That word host is the same word, Hebrew word for armies. It's a title for God that emphasizes God's complete sovereignty over all of the powers of the whole universe. So she addresses him thus. You are the God who's in control of every power everywhere. But she seems to believe that this great God who's in control of all of the powers everywhere still must care about the broken heart of a barren woman from the country. And she's right. And she says to God, basically, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. I'll bring him back here and give him to you at the tabernacle and it will be permanent. I don't think she's making a bargain with the Lord. There's more than that going on here. Hannah's greatest desire in her life has been for what? For a child. And somehow she gets to the point where she realizes. I think she's been praying year. You think she's ever prayed for a child before? Year after year, trip after trip. You think this is her first time? No. But she's always prayed that I would have in my circumstances that which would take my pain away so I can take my son and shove him in Panina's face. Ah, get a load of this. This is different. She takes her greatest desire and gives it to the Lord. My actual need has been taken care of right here in this tabernacle. I needed my sin taken care of. I need fellowship with God. And I'm not able to enjoy that because I am so focused on what I have always wanted for me. And so something breaks in her. And this vow is this, even if you give me a son, I'm going to show you, you are the most important thing to me by promising. Even if you give me a son, I'm not going to keep him. This is not, if you give me a son, I promise to be a good mom. This is, if you give me a son, I won't be his mom. I'm going to bring him here, and we'll see this next week, and leave him to be raised by the priest so he can serve you forever. Now, the, his hair will never be cut meant she wanted him to be a surfer. No, that's not what that means. There were vows in the Old Testament. We won't go back there. But there were vows that people could take and the sign during the period of time I was keeping this vow 
The sign is, I won't cut my hair or shave my beard. Mommies didn't start those, right? Men entered into those vows, and there was a start date and an end date. But Hannah says, this is going to be permanent. He's, the vow's never going to end. If I have a son, Lord, he's yours. And I mean that so sincerely. I mean, I'm not going to keep, even though he was my greatest desire of my life. So Hannah didn't pray for a smart child, for an athletic child, for a successful child, for a child who would take care of her in her old age. She only asked for what she would give away to the Lord anyway. Now poor Eli, the priest, the high priest is there. She, he's looking along, looking at this gal as she falls apart. And she, he misunderstands. He sees this overly emotional gal slobberingly bawling. And besides, ah oh man, another one of these. He assumes she's drunk. Now, the fact that he jumps to that conclusion says more about Israel than it says about Eli. Because he wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Like, if I saw one of you crying in church... I would assume there's something going on emotionally in your heart because that's, that's more common to see here than people showing up loaded. Not Eli. See, the, the wine and strong drink thing that comes up here, that was a part of these meals too. It just was. They showed up with animals. They showed up with a grain. They showed up with bread. And they showed up with wine and strong drink. And some of it was given to God for His part. Some of it was consumed in the, in the fellowship Meals. And apparently Eli had seen more than his share of people who used the excuse of it being there as an excuse to just get bombed. And so he sees this woman falling apart and goes, this again. How long are you going to do this? Why don't you get out of here? And when Hannah tells her story, Eli's demeanor changed. Eli, I don't think, Eli doesn't give a predictive prophecy here. Like, you're going to have a baby, I just know it. No, no, no. What happens in Eli is, is more like this. Oh my goodness, an actual worshiper. It's been so long since I saw someone pour their heart out to God, I forgot what it looked like. I see way more people who are bombed in here than people who are serious about the Lord in here. And so he just says, whatever it is you're praying for, I sure hope you get it. It's been a breath of fresh air. Even though you're hurting, to see someone in here pursuing the Lord from their heart. And then at the, the very end of this passage, I want you to notice when Hannah feels peace. In verse 18 is when Hannah went away and she went back to the meal and her appetite's back. Her face no longer looks sad. Now why is that? Hannah's not pregnant yet. At that point, when Hannah feels peace and gets happy, she has no way of knowing that she will ever be able to have a child. She's never had one before. I don't think she thinks that Eli sprinkled the, mag the magic 
religious pixie dust over her to allow her to have children. What's she got to be so happy about? This is a picture of someone who has traded her greatest desire in for something better. She has met with the Lord and given her pain and her hurt over to him. Now, in some ways, the pressure is off. She just says, well, now I just have to see if God wants another child because I already promised, even if I have one, I'm not going to raise him. Now, she will have a son. She does. They name him Samuel, and he is going to be the judge, the prophet, the leader, the hero that Israel needs. We have to wait for that. He's going to be a massively important figure that will turn this nation back toward God. But we have to wait for that. There's some other things we need to learn from this story. So many things, really. One, I already shared with you, God still works through families that are a mess. But I've distilled the lessons of this passage down to two things that I want you to take home this morning. First, the Lord allows and the Lord causes pain sometimes in order to push people toward Him in their weakness, in their helplessness, in their pain. We can't hide from this truth in this passage God caused that woman's pain. Not all of it. God caused the pain of infertility. Now, there were other people that caused her all kinds of pain too. God didn't cause the pain Panina caused. He didn't cause the pain Elkanah caused. But He caused that problem. That's a difficult truth. And here's my best shot at an understanding of why a good God allows and apparently, at least in some cases, even causes pain. And that's this. There is nothing that can drive people toward God like pain can drive people toward God. It doesn't happen every time there's pain. Sometimes pain is kind of a wedge issue. It does one of two things. Sometimes when I experience pain, I shake my fist at God saying, I know you could have done something about this. And since you've chosen not to, I guess I'm out. It's a pretty natural reaction. But it's not the only reaction and it's not the best reaction. God allows, He even causes pain Because sometimes we won't understand our weakness unless God makes us feel weak. The truth is, every single person who's ever been born is horribly weak before God. Just we don't know it until God allows us to feel it. So Hannah, God allows this pain 
so that she will get to the point where in my helplessness, I've got to do something different. I cannot continue to hope against hope that my circumstances will be such to where I'll be able to be the, the person I always dreamed I would be. That's not going to work. And so she goes and falls down before the God of the universe. That's why God allows pain. And then when he does, oh, Corey Tinboom, the old uh, Holocaust survivor, she worded this concept this way. Here's what she learned starving nearly to death in cells throughout the Holocaust. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Then, number two, God changes the world through those hurting people who will come and submit themselves to Him in their weakness. God allows or causes the pain that lead people to come to submit to Him. And then God changes the world through those people. But they never would have come and fallen down and submitted to God if it wasn't for the pain. Do you think Hannah would have ever given Samuel to the nation of Israel if God hadn't caused her pain first? I don't think there's any way. See, Israel needed a hero. Israel needed Samuel. But before Israel could get Samuel, God had to get Hannah. Make no mistake, the first hero in this book ain't Samuel. It's Hannah. That's the hero. We are all capable of the heroic, friends. But not until we run and throw ourselves down before the God of the universe and admit to Him our weakness and our helplessness. Because the only power that gets anything good accomplished is His power. And it works through weakness. Israel would have never picked Hannah to be its hero. She wasn't daunting, physically imposing. She was, she's the embodiment of weakness. And therein lies her strength. Before Israel, before God could give Israel the judge, He gave Israel a mom who realized her kids were more gods than they were hers. Moms, you want to change the world? Give your kids to the Lord. Don't bring them here and drop them off with me. That's not what I'm saying. But push your kids to know and love the Lord more than you push your kids to succeed at anything else in this world. Because God still changes the world through people who will give themselves to the Lord. And if we make our kids' entire universe about our kids, we shouldn't be surprised when they don't make their universe about God.
Dr. Robert Bergen, he states this second concept this way. True power is to be found not in one's position in society, but in one's posture before God. Folks, once we learn these two things, if we allow the pain God allows to push us toward Him, if when the pain starts, we run toward God and give our cares and our pain to Him and ask, how, what should I get out of this? Not how do I get out of this? We are ready to be heroic. In our weakest moment. He may not change the nation or the world through our pain. But if he only changes our heart and our family. Isn't that enough? Let's pray. Father God, this is a broken and pain filled world. And when the pain comes for us, sometimes we are tempted to believe it's because you don't care. God, we've learned through the story of Hannah that sometimes pain is how you pursue. God, this world needs heroes. We long for somebody to be elected to office to, to become the right general, to be the right role model that would change people in mass. But maybe before you raise anyone up like that, you are waiting for just anonymous folks like us to give our hearts to the God of the universe. Maybe the kind of hero we really need around here is someone like me, someone like my friends here, But we know it's only if we trade in our lives for you, if we will give our pain and our hopes and our dreams over to you and say, have your way with us. And then we are ready to be heroic, not in our power, but through the power of your Son and his Holy Spirit. Make us heroes as we submit to you, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.